Matthew chapter 24. And we'll read um, verses 1 to 28 tonight. Matthew 24, verses 1 to 28. And there the Word of God says this. It says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away, and will betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, and will mislead many." Because lawlessness isn't increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You tonight asking for You to give us wisdom and understanding, Lord, that we might be able to rightly divide and understand the Word of Truth. Lord, we know that, um, Lord, Your Word it contains spiritual truths, and they can only be discerned by those who are spiritual people. And so we ask, Father, for Your Spirit to be with us tonight and to lead and to guide us into all truth. Lord, help us to understand this passage, Lord, though it is difficult in many regards, and has been subject to much disagreement and controversy through the years. Lord, we pray that You would help us to have a sober and a moderate approach, uh, and that You would help us to grasp, Lord, the importance and the teaching, the instruction, Lord, that is necessary for our godliness, for our endurance and perseverance through trials and tribulations in this present life. So, Lord, help us uh, to be sober-minded, and Lord, we pray for Your guidance and Your wisdom, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so again, we began this in part last week with an introduction to eschatology and end times uh, because this chapter, chapter 24, is devoted uh, to these things, right? To these teachings concerning, I think, both the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and then also uh, other things that are related to the coming of the Son of Man and the end of this age. And as we mentioned last week, this is the most difficult passage in uh, Matthew to interpret and, you know, there are various ways of looking at it, some that are better than others. And so I hope to present one that's better than others so that it is clear, it's understandable. And we have to keep in our mind as we go through this that, again, where many people go awry is that they want to get bogged down into details, into dates, into timings, uh, into all these various aspects and uh, specifics related to the end times 
And then they miss the greater point of why these passages are in the Bible for us. Uh, they're there for our endurance, for our endurance and for our comfort uh, in the time of our trials and tribulations, that we will suffer in this life. We must endure those things, but we can rest assured that Christ will deliver us and He will bring this world to an end. Right? He is the one who will do it and He will deliver His people. So we must uh, press on, be faithful to Him, but also be comforted and encouraged knowing that uh, the Lord will deliver His people. And that's why this passage, also the book of Revelation, that's what it's teaching us. It's teaching us the need for perseverance, right? Endurance in the things of God, that we must persevere. And even when the world seems to be falling into complete chaos and turmoil around us, God is still in control and God will bring this present age and this present world, He will bring it to His end for His glory at the return of Jesus Christ. So let's begin then in chapter 24, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2 says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Here, this is the occasion for why this teaching is brought up, right? Why this is introduced it is the occasion of the disciples and Jesus being in the temple. We know that He's been going to Jerusalem. He's been there in the temple. According to Luke chapter 21, uh, in Luke's account of this, in verses 1 to 4, it's when Jesus is in the temple and people are putting money in the money box and that's where He brings up the widow who put in all that she had and brings her forward as an example of true generosity and of a true heart in worship of God. So they're there in the temple, and the temple was, in terms of Jerusalem, the most glorious, elaborate, beautiful building that was there in the city, right? This is where the attention was focused upon, was there on the temple mount, and the temple, rightfully so, was the most uh, uh, glorious building in all of the city, and for the Jewish people, this was the centerpiece of their worship of God. This is where they were to go and worship God in the temple and its building and, and the directions for it had been given by God, by His institution, through the prophet Moses so many years ago. And this set them apart from the other nations. For the other nations also had their temples, but their temples were to their false gods. Whereas the temple in Jerusalem was to the true God, and it was to teach them and to lead them to worship God in the proper way. So it was a source of great pride, of great comfort for the people of Israel. But also, we know through the years, the temple had itself become a crux, a stumbling block to them, because they began to think that simply possessing the temple granted them the favor of God. And that just having the temple meant, ensured, that God was truly pleased with them and that God was truly honored among them. But this is not the case at all. And this temple here is not the original temple, the temple that Solomon built, but this is what is called Herod's temple. Uh, after uh, the time of Solomon, when the Babylonians came in 586 and destroyed Jerusalem, that original temple built by Solomon was completely destroyed, right? It was completely destroyed, stripped, and it was taken off into Babylon. Then, under the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple was rebuilt, and that temple was not as glorious as the temple of Solomon. It was not as glorious in terms of the beauty, the grandeur, the gold, all of the uh, adornments that accompanied Solomon's temple. But then that temple, which was built during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, had also been renovated, and so this temple was called Herod's temple. Not that Herod was the architect of it, but Herod was the one who used the government money in order to beautify and to do various building projects, renovations toward the temple, so that this temple was a very grand building. Not as grand as Solomon's, but it was more grand than what was built during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in terms of the outward adornment and the grandeur of what people would see in regards to the building. And again, the temple is a source of great pride, to the Jewish people and to the nation, and rightly understood it should be a source of pride because it is a great privilege and blessing 
given to them by God over and against the nations of the world because only they were given the instructions for the building of the true temple. And God can only be properly worshipped here in this place during this period of time. Right? Not again that the worship of God has ever been regulated to one place, but rather the institutions that were established by God during the time of the Old Covenant, those institutions could only be properly performed at the temple, such as the sacrifices. The sacrifices, the various offerings, those things must be done there by the proper person in the proper way. So it was central to the worship established by God under the Old Covenant, which ultimately had its purpose in preparing the people and teaching them about the coming Christ and what Christ would do for their salvation. So it is a great benefit and privilege for them. And they are there in the temple. Jesus, again, being the Christ, the Messiah, being of the Jewish people, His own people, this being the worship instituted that He lived under Himself. And he also went to the temple. His parents went to the temple. They offered the proper sacrifices, being that he was their firstborn son. Jesus went to the festivals and feasts, and those things that were necessary, he also performed as well here at the temple. And we know that he is very concerned about what takes place here, because even here at the end of his life, when he comes to the temple this last time, he's already cleansed the temple from the false worship that was taking place there and the corruptions, the pollutions that were a part of it. And it was because of his zeal for the house of God. Zeal for God's house consumed him, which prompted him then to throw out those who had corrupted and polluted the worship of God. Zeal for God and God's zeal here manifested in this place of worship, this house that had been built for that purpose. So, they are there in the temple, and as they're going away, the disciples are pointing out the temple buildings to Him. They're pointing them out, wanting Him to reflect upon it, wanting Him to speak on it, right? wanting Him to take notice of the beauty, the glory associated with the buildings in the various structures there in the temple. So it's something that they look at, just as if we went into uh, some city and we went to a cathedral or some great building, we would look out and, and look at all the various architecture, the carvings, the things that make it glorious and beautiful. And you stare there, stand there and you stare and look and wonder at this great building that has been built. That's what they're doing, right? Which is natural and is common to man. And they're noticing the temple building in this way. Now, the problem here is that people have a tendency uh, in them to judge things by outward appearance, right? To judge the temple according to the buildings, to the stones, to the beauty of it in terms of what is taking place outwardly in the way that it looks upon them. But what makes a place of worship beautiful in the sight of God is not the architecture, it's not the grandeur of the building, but rather it is the worship that takes place there. And in terms of the worship that takes place there, what is more important than the building is the people, and specifically the hearts of the people. What is taking place in the hearts and in the lives of the people? Because if the hearts of the people are far from God, then whatever they're doing there, even if they're going through the proper rituals, it is nothing in the sight of God. It's actually detestable in the sight of God. And yet... People have a tendency to think that God's presence, His approval, right, that, that God loves these types of outward adornments, right? Some great cathedral, oh, it's so holy, it, it's so reverent, right? This must be something that is very pleasing to God. But if in that great cathedral, God is not properly worshipped, if God's Word is not being properly taught, if the people are not coming in the correct way, then no matter how wonderful the building is, it cannot make up for the deficiency in the people, right. right? And that is the problem that's taking place here during the life of Israel. These people honor me with their lips, Jesus says, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as commandments the precepts of men. Their worship is a vain worship, even though they're worshiping in the true temple of God. And even though the temple is a very beautiful building, yet the people themselves are not beautiful in the sight of God. 
but rather they are detestable because their hearts are far from Him. In 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, this concept is not something unique or new to the New Testament, but this has been the case from the very beginning. Right? Even if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, why was the sacrifice, the offering of Abel acceptable while Cain's was rejected? Was it not because Abel himself was acceptable to God, whereas Cain was rejected? And what made Abel acceptable was his faith. He had faith, whereas Cain was an unbeliever, right? He had unbelief, and it was the heart of the man that made the sacrifice or the offering acceptable in the sight of God, right? Not the mere outward token, but rather the heart, the inward man that is bringing the outward token, right? When the inward man is right, then the outward is also acceptable to God. But if the inward man is corrupt and polluted, then whatever they bring before God is noxious. It's, it's no good to him, right? It has nothing there to Please or satisfy him. First Samuel 16, verse 6. This is when Samuel goes to uh, David's household to anoint the new king that would come from the house of Jesse. And he's looking at the various sons of Jesse, judging them by outward appearance. First Samuel 16, verse 6. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went down to Ramah. So there he, the Lord tells Samuel not to look at appearance, because God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in terms of a place of worship, many times men judge by outward appearance. The building, right? The decorations, the furniture the uh, accessories that are there. And they think that that is what is acceptable in the sight of God. But God doesn't look to those things. God looks to the people and to the hearts of the people that are gathering there. So whether the men or the buildings or whatever, right, what makes a place of worship or a people of worship beautiful in the sight of God is not the outward decorum, it's not the grandeur, but it is the men and the worship that takes place in that place coming from the hearts of men, right? Ultimately, it is the heart that is the crucial component in the worship of God. And if the heart is corrupt, then whatever they do there is corrupt. So if the people are meeting in some great cathedral, yet the people themselves are corrupt, they, their heart is far from God, the worship that they're offering is a polluted worship, then God doesn't, he doesn't care how great the building is. It's not pleasing in his sight. And if there are another people who are meeting in a barn somewhere or out in the middle of the woods in a cave, and yet these people are humble and contrite and lowly in spirit, and they love the Lord, and they're worshiping God with a sincere heart, and they're worshiping God according to his word, then that is pleasing in God's sight. That place is beautiful to God, while the other is rejected by him. This is the way that we have to look at it in regards to worship. Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. Revelation 3, 9 says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. 
Here, this synagogue. These are Jews who gather in their synagogue. And when they gather in their synagogue, what do they say that they're doing? They say that they're worshiping God. But this synagogue is not a synagogue to the Lord God, but rather, he says, it's a synagogue of Satan. Because what they're doing there is not inspired, it is not coming from the Lord, but rather it's coming from Satan. So their synagogue is actually a synagogue of Satan. And so a church building can be a church building of Satan. And actually, in terms of churches in the world, the most beautiful and grand of the churches are all Roman Catholic. And all of those are churches to Satan. Right? So we shouldn't judge it in this way, but we have to judge with proper judgment. Okay, so that's what they're doing. Right? This is a common problem, a common sin to man. Even Samuel, the prophet, originally wanted to judge the sons of Jesse according to their outward appearance. And God says, we can't do that. We have to look deeper. We have to look there in the heart. And so Jesus uses this occasion to also address the same issue. Verse 2, He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus is telling them, right, you're, you're pointing out the beauty and the greatness of this building. And the Jews certainly took great pride in having the temple and they took great comfort. It was a source of security for them that they had the temple of the Lord. But Jesus says, you see this building? You see all of these things? Everything that you're seeing here in your lifetime, all of it is going to be torn down to the ground. And not one stone is going to be left upon another. Now, should this be shocking to them? Sure. Well, it is a very shocking thing to their ears to hear Jesus say this, to hear Him say that their, their temple, where they had gone their whole life to worship God, was going to be completely destroyed. But in terms of the history of Israel, is this some new concept? Is this something that has never happened before? No, it has happened in 586 to a temple that was even greater than this one that was built by Solomon. Solomon's temple instead of Herod's temple. And it was raised to the ground. So if it happened once, can it not happen again? And why was Solomon's temple destroyed? Because of the sin of the people. It was their sin and their disobedience to God that led to the destruction of the temple of Solomon, the destruction of Jerusalem, and their own captivity for 70 years. And the only reason they're back... And the only reason the temple has been re rebuilt is because of the kindness of God, His grace and His mercy, His faithfulness to His promises. But it happened once and it can happen again. And their sins, according to what we've read already in chapter 23, 22 and 23, their sins are of an even greater magnitude than the sins of the generations leading up to the destruction of Solomon's temple. Because those people killed the prophets and persecuted the prophets, but who are they going to kill? They're going to kill the Son of God. They're going to kill Christ Jesus. Their rejection and their sin is of an even greater magnitude. So why would it not happen? That God would do it again. That He would renew His works of judgment in this generation as He had done in a previous generation. No, He has done it once. He will do it again. And this is what we read a couple of weeks ago in 23. Chapter 23, verse 37 to 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is being left to you desolate. That's what's going to happen. It will be a desolation. Their house. This is their temple. Their temple, their city. It's not God's because what they do there shows that they don't belong to God. You want it, you can have it, but it's going to be a desolation. I'm going to completely destroy it and show His displeasure in these people in what they have done. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7 Verses 1 to 15. Jeremiah 7, verse 1. 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all of your brothers, all of the offspring of Ephraim. Here, Jeremiah, he is preaching the same thing in his day. And he's telling them there, do you not remember what happened at Shiloh? And what was Shiloh? This was the place where the tabernacle was erected. It was the place before Jerusalem where the people went to worship God. This was there. It was established there in Shiloh. And yet what happened to Shiloh? Well, it's a desolation now. It's been completely ruined and destroyed. For what reason? Because of their sin. Their sin and their wickedness. He destroyed it. That place was not so sacred to God that the sins of the people would keep Him from destroying that place. He did it there. And now He's telling them, He's going to do the same thing in Jerusalem. And He's going to destroy this temple that you are putting your trust in. Because they believe the temple gives them immunity. Complete immunity to sin at their leisure and nothing will come upon them. Because God surely would not destroy His temple that is called by His name that He has given to us His people. And so they use it as a license to commit sin to go out and commit adultery and murder, to rob, right? He calls it a den of robbers. Isn't that the same thing Jesus said in His own day? It's a den of robbers. So just as it happened in Shiloh, so it happened in Jerusalem during the time of Jeremiah, and so it's happening again during the time of Christ. And this is the same as what we've been studying in Hebrews. In Hebrews, He's drawing our attention to the wilderness generation so that we might learn from their bad example, to not sin as they sinned, to not do what they did, to not trust in deceptive words. We have these types of instances repeated for us throughout the Bible to show us the surety, the certainty of God's character, His nature, and the way that God acts in the world, His works of judgment in the world. And if we do the same thing that they did, He'll do the same thing to us. Doesn't He threaten the churches? in Revelation, that He's going to remove their lampstand? He's going to bring judgment upon those churches if they don't repent of their ways, if they don't quit doing the evil, sinful things that they're doing. And just because a church is a church, a true church, doesn't mean it'll always be a true church. God can come and remove His lampstand, remove His blessing from that church, if the people get complacent and they use the blessings of God to promote their own sin just as they were doing in Jeremiah 7, and just as the people of Israel were doing here in Matthew chapter 24. The same thing happening over and over again. And according to 1 Corinthians 10, these things happen to them, but they're written for who? For our instruction, right? For our instruction, so that we might learn from these examples and not repeat the same sins that they repeated. 
right? We must be aware of these things. Also, John chapter 4. John 4. Verses 19 to 26. John four nineteen, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Here, this principle that Jesus is establishing here, though in the Old Covenant it is true that the worship of God needed to take place in Jerusalem, Right, in terms of the institutions. Now, in all times and in all generations, our very life is to be given up in service to God. Our, our entire life is to be an act of devotion and worship to God. But in terms of the outward worship, the rituals, the various institutions established by God, those things had to take place in Jerusalem from the time of Moses until the coming of Christ. Here, the Samaritans, they worship on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus is saying, you worship in ignorance, but we are worshiping according to the truth because salvation is of the Jews. No, the Jews are right that the place of worship is Jerusalem, but he's saying the time is coming and has now come when these things don't matter anymore, right? In terms of the outward place, it doesn't matter if it's Jerusalem or Gerizim or any other place in the world. What matters is that people worship in spirit and in truth. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now the question is, did God seek those worshipers before this time? Or only after the coming of Christ is it necessary to worship in spirit and truth? No, it's always been the case that it is in spirit and truth. This is the kind of worship that God seeks. Now true worship in spirit and truth from Moses to Christ would take place in Jerusalem but just because it was taking place in Jerusalem did not necessarily mean that it was being done in spirit and truth. Right. right? What the key is, though, is that it is done in spirit and in truth. Those are the worshipers that God is seeking. Spirit, meaning people who are born of the Spirit, who are regenerated, who are filled with the Spirit of God. How can we offer worship acceptable to God with a dead heart, with a corrupt, natural, sinful heart, when the Natural man is abhorrent to God. He cannot please God. How can that worship coming from a natural man be pleasing in the sight of God? It's impossible because it's sinful in and of itself. It takes the Spirit of God to overcome that heart, to regenerate that heart, to fill that man, so that now the worship is proceeding from spiritual principles within the heart of the man. And then it must be done in truth according to the Word of God. Not according to man's imagination and fiction and his own ideas, but according to the Word of God, according to the truth of God. And this is, again, the problem here in Jerusalem. The people are not worshiping God in spirit and truth, and the worship taking place there in the temple is not proper worship. Their worship is so corrupt that in the name of God, they're going to kill the Son of God. They're going to crucify their very Messiah, under the worship and under the leadership that's taking place in this temple. Is God pleased with that? No. And that's why Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Because of the sin of this generation and what they commit against Christ and then against His apostles, the result is God has determined judgment against them. And this judgment at this point, it has been determined by God, and He will not relent. It is going to happen. It is going to come upon them. It has been fixed, and it is certain. This is similar to how it was during the days of Josiah. God had already determined, because of the sins of Manasseh, that He was going to destroy Jerusalem. And even though Josiah was a righteous man, 
God delayed that judgment, but He did not relent of it. He said, it's going to happen. I've already determined it. And there is a time, a point in time, where the judgment of God is unavoidable. There are some times where through repentance, the judgment can be avoided, such as the men of Nineveh. But there are other times where God has determined it, it is fixed, and He will not relent. But He is going to do it. This is where they are at at this point. And that's why Jesus is saying to them, not one stone is going to be left upon the other. But all of it is going to be destroyed. Okay, verse 3. Naturally, they want to know, when is this, when is this going to happen? Right? Every, they would want to know, when is this going to happen? It says in verse 3, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Here, this has now sparked curiosity in them. Right, rightfully so, which is good for them to come and ask him these questions, which will lead then to him giving them further teaching to help them and prepare them for these events that are coming. They want to know when is this going to happen. Now here, they ask two questions, right? Two questions, two things that they want to know. One, when will these things happen? This is in relationship to the destruction of the temple. So you've just told us not one stone will be left on another. When is this going to happen? And then secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Right, these two together. The sign of His coming, the second coming of Christ, they understand rightly that when He returns a second time, it will be the end of the age. This present world will come to an end. This present age, the age in which we live, in this present world will come to an end at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So these are the two questions that they want to know. And here, I think this verse, verse 3, is really the key to understanding everything that comes after in chapter 24. So if we don't properly understand verse 3 and what they're saying and what their assumptions are, then it's hard to understand rightly the rest of the chapter. Now, the way I take the rest of the chapter is verses 4 to 28 are addressing the first question, and then verses 29 to 51 are addressing the second question. So, 4 to 28, he is explaining to them, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And telling them what the signs are, the things that will accompany as it builds toward this, because it's not going to happen immediately, right? This is happening around 30 A.D., and the destruction of the temple will be about another 40 years. So it will be during the lifetime of many of those who are listening to the words and to the teachings of Jesus. There are some of His disciples that will live to see this. So He's telling them and preparing them and showing them what are going to be the signs, the evidences, where they know the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is about to take place, and then how they should respond when they begin to see these signs that are revealing what God is doing. And how should they respond? They should run. Run. That's, his, that's what He tells them. Get out. Flee. Run. Don't trust in deceptive words. Don't think that God is going to spare it. God has determined to destroy it, so when you see it coming, get out so that you yourself are not swept away in the judgment that comes upon Jerusalem because it's going to be gruesome. It's going to be a very, very difficult and a harsh trial. Then 29 to 51 are answering the question, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? It is addressing that. Now, I think their question... Because here, when Jesus introduces this, He doesn't say anything about His second coming, and He doesn't say anything about the end of the age. When Jesus introduces this, what is He talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. But they assume that the destruction of the temple corresponds with His second coming and with the end of the age. Because they cannot imagine a world in which the temple is not here and that when the temple is going to be destroyed, that that must in and of itself necessitate the end of this age and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So they're taking these two events, the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ, and they're conflating them together as if they are going to happen simultaneously, right? In one event. 
right? Because as soon as Jesus announces the destruction of the temple, they immediately assume that the destruction of the temple will take place at His second coming and the end of the age. Isn't that what they say? When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They're putting all these things together. But there is a period of time that separates the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ. And this is the period of time in which we live, the last days, that began at the time of Christ, His death and resurrection and His ascension, and the destruction of the temple was in close proximity to those events and has continued on. And now we are 2,000 years after those events. And has Jesus returned yet? No, we're still waiting, longing for the second coming of Christ and the end of this present age. Their assumption is that all these things happen together when what they need to see and understand is the destruction of the temple is an event that will happen in their own lifetime in close proximity but then the second coming of Christ will be sometime later, a great time later, an event that we are still longing and waiting for, that they are separated with this gap of time, this age or epoch, which is called in the Bible the last days. And this is the time in which we find ourselves. So these are two separate events separated by at least 2,000 years, right? 2,000 years and counting because that's where we're at right now. Now, again, let me show another passage, I think, that shows the way that they're thinking. Luke 19. Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 11. says, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because He was near Jerusalem, and they suppose that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So it's already in their mind that when they arrive in Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. That this consummation of things will take place at that time. They're not seeing that there is a period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. That is a long period of time, the time of our sojourning and of our testing, our trials, the time of the Gentiles when the gospel will go out to the ends of the earth, that these things are necessary as well. And there is a period of time between the first and second coming of Christ that is a very long period of time. But they suppose that when they arrive in Jerusalem, the kingdom of God was going to appear in its final form, right, in its glorious form, that Jesus would set up His kingdom at that point, but... Jesus has, in a sense, set up His kingdom, but in a spiritual and an invisible way. And now He is at the right hand of God, waiting until the day that His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. Now, th these things are predicted in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, it, that, does that not anticipate and assume that there is a period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. He's finished His work, so He's sitting at the right hand of God, but He's also waiting for the day that His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. That is not the final perfect kingdom of Christ come upon this earth where all of His enemies are destroyed. There is a period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ. So I think that is the key really to understanding this passage. Now, the problem that you often find today is that many people follow the same assumptions as the disciples. And so they either put everything of Matthew 24 in the past, which would be the post-millennial position. They put everything in the past. So even the second coming, some of them will place in the past at 8070. And that's very problematic, that Jesus' second coming, and even some of them, the resurrection has already taken place, and it all took place in AD 70. So that is not good for people to believe and to teach those things. So some people put everything in the past, and everything that he's talking about here, all of it was fulfilled in AD 70. And then there are other people who put it all in the future. 
And everything in Matthew 24 is dealing with future events that will take place during the Great Tribulation and we will not be here at all. The church will be raptured out and we'll be in heaven, so it really doesn't pertain to any of us. But I think the best approach is that some of it is dealing with the past, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem, to prepare the disciples for the suffering and tribulation that they will face. Because from the time of the ascension of Christ until the destruction of Jerusalem, their greatest opponents are going to be the Jews. And they're going to do to them what they did to Christ. They're going to treat them miserably and they're going to suffer greatly at the hands of the Jewish people. And this is necessary for the Jews to fill up the measure of their father's sins. Just as in previous generations they rejected the prophets, so now they've rejected Christ, but also His apostles. They're going to do the same thing to His apostles, and in doing this, there is a period of time for them to fill up the measure of their father's sins until that cup is full, and then the judgment of God will come upon them about 40 years after the ascension of Christ. So in that period of time, the church will be the focal point of attack and persecution that is coming primarily from the Jewish people. And then that will lead to their destruction, to the destruction of Jerusalem. And the disciples and many of the early Christians are going to still be in Jerusalem at this time because we know that this is where the early Christians, this is where they met at. They started in Jerusalem, then to Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. That the church was there and the apostles were there for a very long time. And there remained a church in Jerusalem for many years. And we know from 2 Corinthians that that church in Jerusalem did suffer greatly. That they were constantly being persecuted and that the Apostle Paul was raising funds, taking up offerings in order to help relieve the poverty that the church in Jerusalem was facing because of the severe persecution that was upon them. So the church needs to be ready and prepared so that when the judgment of God comes upon the nation of Israel, they're not in Jerusalem when it goes down. They need to get out so that they don't get swept away along with the wicked. And this is God's preserving His people, just as He did with righteous Lot. When the judgment came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, God delivered Lot. He brought him out so that he did not suffer alongside those wicked people. Well, this is what Jesus is doing for His people as well. He is preparing them and telling them in advance, this is what's going to happen. These are the signs. When you see these things happening, then this is what you need to do so that you don't fall into the judgment that's going to happen to the wicked people here. So He is preserving and protecting His people in that way. He is the Good Shepherd after all, right? And does He not love and care for His own? And there are times where God causes His people to go through the judgment with the wicked, such as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were righteous men, and yet they were taken into captivity with the rest of the Jews, though they were godly men. Now, in that case, when that judgment comes upon the wicked, it is for their punishment. When it comes upon them, it's for their sanctification, it's for their good, and God will use it to test them and preserve and protect them and to increase their faith and, and show His blessing upon them. And certainly there are times when God calls His church, His people, to suffer and to go through these judgments, these fiery trials that He brings upon the world of the ungodly, and then we just have to bear up under it and trust in the Lord, and God uses it for our sanctification. But there are other times when God will deliver His people and make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, such as we mentioned with Lot, there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, He did this for the children of Israel whenever the plagues came upon Egypt. They came upon the people, the Egyptians, but what was happening with Israel? They were being preserved and protected from those things. God was making a distinction, and that's what Christ is doing here. He's making a distinction and preparing His people for the judgment that is going to come. So, some of these things then are dealing with past events, that are necessary for the preparation and of His people. And they're good for us as well, because it reminds us that God is a God of judgment, and that uh, those who are disobedient in this way, that they will be punished. And also that He preserves and protects His people. 
And then some of these events, I think, are future. And he's addressing the second question of, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that is still future to us, and that we need to know so that we're ready for the second coming of Christ. So all of it is for our benefit. Okay, does that make sense? That's the way, that's the way I'm taking the chapter and the way I think is the best way to make sense of what is taking place. Okay, then verses 4 to 8. Here, again, this begins the teaching related to the destruction of Jerusalem. 4 to 8. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Here, he begins by telling them, when these things are happening, make sure that no one misleads you. Right? Whenever these kinds of judgments and perilous times came upon the people of Israel, Throughout their history, this would be a time where many false Christs, false prophets would arise. And they would be telling the people, everything's going to be all right. God has given a word to me. God has raised me up. I am the Christ and I'm here to deliver you, right? Trust in me and I will deliver you and nothing will befall us. And God will give us victory over the Romans and over all of our enemies because we are his people and I am his Christ. This is what people are going to be saying. So he's saying... Make sure no one misleads you during this time. And during this period of time, according to Jewish history, there were many false Christs, many men who had a movement or a following who were, uh, were self-appointed, raised themselves up, and they claimed to be the coming Messiah. And there were people that followed them, who listened to them, and what ended up happening to all those people? They all got slaughtered, right? They all got killed and slaughtered. So Jesus is telling them, do not be misled. Don't be misled and do not listen to him, right? And as the, again, the yoke of the Roman Empire became heavier and heavier and heavier, and there was more hostility between Rome and Israel and Jerusalem, there was a greater propensity for the people to want some deliverer. And those people, those false Christs and false prophets, know that. They know what the people want, and so they give them what they want. And this is the way it always works with false teachers. The people have some desire, and in this case, their desire is to be out of the oppression of Rome, and the false teacher gives them what they want. I'm here to deliver you. Trust in me. Give me your money. Follow me, and, and we'll all make it through because God has given me a word. He's given me the promise of God, and we're all going to be okay. And they will preach peace and safety to the people. But is there going to be peace and safety for the Israelites? No, there's not. Jesus has already said it's not going to happen. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. There is no, going to be no peace and safety for them. So if you're trusting in some man, and you're putting your hope blindly in him, that even though everything around me is telling me we're about to get destroyed... But this man is telling me it's all going to be okay. God's going to do a miracle for us. Well, if you're trusting in that, then you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer miserably, and you're going to be swept away in that judgment because this is what the false teachers do. They promise them peace, safety, security, but they do not deliver on their promises. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. Verses 1 to 6. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There, 
Many false prophets have gone out into the world into the world. And he's telling them the way that you know a prophet or a man of God, a teacher, has the Spirit of God in him is that he confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Well, if someone else, uh, you know, Barnabas or Josephus or uh, Maimonides, whoever, some Jew, is saying, I am the Christ, then he's denying that Jesus is the Christ. Right? That's the point he's making here. Jesus Christ means the person, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Christ. And he has already come in the flesh he has died for our sins. He has been resurrected to new life. And He has ascended and is at the right hand of God the Father. Well, if Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, then who's this man who's claiming to be the Christ? We know that the guy's a fraud and a phony because he's denying Jesus as the Christ and that He has come in the flesh and has fulfilled the work of God. So if this other man is claiming to be Christ, then who is he of? What spirit is he of? He says he's of the spirit of Antichrist, which is the spirit of the devil who is coming. And who is he going to deceive? The world. He'll speak like the world because he's from the world and the world will listen to him. But he's saying, but you are not of the world. So you shouldn't listen to them, but rather you should listen to us, the apostles and the teaching of the Bible, who confess that Jesus is the Christ and that he has come in the flesh. He has died for our sins and been raised for our justification. So that's what's going to happen. There will be many people during this time, and they should know better. They should know if this man out here is claiming to be the Christ out in the wilderness or in some inner room claiming to be the Christ, we know this guy's a fraud because they are the ones who will see Jesus ascend into heaven and be told by the angels, just as he ascended, so he will come again. And they didn't see him come again like that. So why would we believe that this man out here is saying, claiming that he is the Christ? So he says, see that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. They will mislead many because they're going to tell them exactly what they want to hear. Right? Which is what they wanted Jesus to tell them when he was on earth. Didn't they want to take him by force and make him king? deliver them from the Romans, give them their own nation back. But Jesus did not come to give them some political nation, to deliver them from their political enemies. He came to deliver us from sin, from sin and slavery to sin and death and the devil so that we might have forgiveness and might have peace with God. But they didn't want that. They wanted a political Messiah, one who would give them a nation of their own, give them freedom, give them prosperity, give them victory over all of their enemies. They wanted the prosperity gospel, just as many people want today as well, and Jesus wouldn't give that to them. But there are always plenty of people who will. If there's a demand, then you can be sure that that demand will be filled by a ready supply of false teachers and false Christ who will mislead many because the people want to be misled. They want what they're selling. And Jesus is telling His disciples, don't believe them. Don't listen to them. Don't be misled with these other people. Even if the whole world is going out and following after these people, do not listen to them. But rather, have a sound mind, know your scriptures, be sober in what you're doing, and know how to discern good from evil. And test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Verse 6, then you will be hearing of wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Here, all during this time, it will seem as if the entire world right, is tearing itself apart. Right? That it, the whole thing is falling apart. Isn't this what we experience as well? There's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's tumult, there's all this stuff happening and everything is the end of the world. Everything's going to crash, everything's going to revert back and we're going to go back to the dark ages and we're all going to be in misery, which is what the uh, overlords want. But anyway, this is what happens all the time. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to hear of all these things. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be turmoil. All of this is going to be happening all around you. But don't be frightened by these things. 
Don't be overcome with anxiety. Do not think that God is out, has lost control, that the world is operating outside of His authority and His control. Who's the one directing all these things? It is God who is. But again, when these events are happening around us and we're seeing what's going on, what do we have the tendency to do? We're filled with fear. We're filled with anxiety. We begin to question God, His love of us, that does God know what He's doing? We can become like the wilderness generation. We can begin to grumble against the Lord. But if we grumble against the Lord and we manifest an evil, unbelieving heart, then we'll fall away from the living God. And we can't do that. We have to know that these things are going to happen. It is common to man. Every generation faces these trials, these temptations, trepidation. All of this is common to human existence, right? Man is born for trouble. So says the prophet Job. And this is the way it will be for us. Didn't Jacob say to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my sojourning? Few and evil, he says, have been the days of my sojourning. Well, this is what's going on here. The days are filled with evil, right? There's evil in the world among men, wars and rumors of wars. And then there's all sorts of natural evils that are happening as well. Famines, earthquakes, kingdom against kingdom. All these things are happening, but this is all merely the beginning of birth pangs. Just as a woman going into labor begins to feel the birth pangs, but there's still more labor to come. There's still more intensity that's going to come, right? And that's what's going to happen to the Jewish nation. All these things are happening around them, but it's going to become more intense and it's going to come closer and closer and closer and it's going to happen to them, right? And we also know, didn't the prophet uh, in Acts chapter, in Acts, we'll just say the book of Acts, predicted that there would be a famine that would come into Jerusalem? He predicted it, uh, that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem during this time. So these things did come about. These types of events were happening, and these were the beginning signs of God's judgments. Aren't these the judgments that God pours out in the world? He raises up one kingdom and uses them to destroy another kingdom, such as he did to the Egyptians by using the Assyrians, and then such as he did with the Babylonians by destroying the Assyrians, and such as he did with the Medes and Persians by destroying the Babylonians. He does it over and over and over again, kingdom against kingdom. God is the one who's directing them, raising them up, using them to bring his judgments upon nations in the world. And then what about famines and earthquakes? Who's the one that controls all of that? These are all the judgments of God that He is pouring out upon the world because of the sins of men. And this is going to be happening around them, but this is only the beginning. There's going to be an even greater judgment that's going to come upon the state of Israel because of what they have done to Christ. Don't, He says, be frightened when you see these things. Luke 21, Luke 21 verses 10 to 19, this is the corresponding... Uh, passage in the Gospel of Luke that relates to ours in Matthew 24. And he gives more insight here concerning what is going to happen during this time to the disciples. Verse 10, Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is what they're going to experience. And this is what we're going to experience as well in this present life. They're going to face these types of persecutions. And the apostles are going to be persecuted. They're going to deliver them over to synagogues and prisons. They're going to be brought before kings and governors for the sake of Christ. And didn't this happen to them? They did stand before kings and governors. They were persecuted. 
They were treated like refuse. They were thrown in prison. John's head was cut off, and many others of them were persecuted and were put to death. But he's telling them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will be with you. He's comforting them in this. Though he puts a very difficult task before them, he's not going to leave them and forsake them, but he will be with them. He will give them his spirit, and he will give them the strength to endure and to have the courage to speak up in these very daunting situations. And none of their enemies will be able to resist the wisdom that is coming from them because their wisdom is the very wisdom of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. It will be so bad that even their parents, brothers, and relatives and friends will put some of them to death. Even their own countrymen and their own families will persecute them for the sake of Christ. Hated by all, because of Christ, yet not a hair on your head will perish. Not a hair will fall from their head apart from the will of their Father in heaven. Their head will not be chopped off of their shoulders apart from the will of their Father in heaven. Nothing can happen to us apart from the will of God. And He knows how to preserve and protect His own people, and He knows how to glorify His name in us. And sometimes that may be through long life, and sometimes it may be through a death in which we bring glory to Christ. Whatever God determines, we should be content with, knowing that God knows what is best. And it calls for endurance. By your endurance, he says, you will gain your lives. This is the same as we've been reading in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. We have to hold fast. We have to press on. We have to endure until the end, right? Unless we believed in vain. If we have vain belief then we will not endure. When the trials come and the, and the difficulties, then we'll want to fall away, just like the wilderness generation. But if we have true faith, then, and our faith is united to the Word of Christ, then it will be manifested by endurance. And it is through endurance, he says, that you will gain your lives. So, it seems like it will be out of control, but he tells them, do not fear and don't be anxious because God is on His throne and He is the one who rules over the world of men, and God is the one who brings His judgments upon the earth. And this is what He's going to do. So trust in the Lord, be faithful to Him, endure whatever opportunity God gives to give a testimony, give the testimony, and entrust your souls to a righteous judge who is able to deliver us. That's what we have to do, and that's what Christ is calling them to do as well.